All right, so on this episode, we got The Godfather. We've had him on this show before, uh, Dave Milston. He's, uh, as you guys know, a clam farmer, but uh, <laughs> he wanted to get with us during the PGA reunion to share a story that he uh, didn't get to share his first, first, during his first interview. Yeah, he was uh, on a jump mission in the North Atlantic, and there were a few mistakes made, and Luck was on his side that day, and he ended up... I don't want to spoil it, but landing very close to the target. Yeah, pretty impressive. Thank God, or else <laughs> yeah. he would have died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. It's a solid one. Making it official with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Chief Milston, you're back. And uh, I think we left our last podcast with a few questions, and then I know you had a story that you wanted to share with us while we're out here at the 2023 Pararescue Reunion here okay. in Kentucky. Um, we kind of laughed about it as we left talking to you. It was the first interview we had conducted and you had mentioned briefly that you had been in a plane crash and we didn't even ask you about it. Um, and it was very early in your, your time uh, but uh, we're wondering if you could remember that story. Um, you got me now. Plane crash. A plane crash. Yeah, you said you might have been a hard landing for a plane. But if you don't remember, it's all good. We can get That's into right. the story about the North Atlantic. Yeah, the only uh, oh, let's see, plane crash. The only close call I had was it was skydiving, was a rescue, but uh, I was skydiving in out of Reno, Nevada, back when I was a survival instructor before I became a PJ, and I was with Lenny Waugh, who was the, really the first Navy SEAL. And this is 1962, he come out to Stead to go to the judo school before going to Vietnam. Of course, he couldn't tell me that. And we're taken off from Reno Airport in an old Stinson, three of us in the back of the airplane skydiving. I was in the door, jump master, and Lenny was number two in the middle, and a friend of mine was number three on the other side. And we lost the engine at 200 feet as we're climbing out. It got real quiet and Lenny is climbing over the top of me trying to dive out the door at 200 feet. And I had to grab him and hold him because at 200 feet, he had burned right in. And very fortunately, just before impacting, the pilot was able to switch gas tanks, got it started again, and we pulled out. And I said, Lenny, what were you thinking about? And Lenny said, well, Dave, uh, we were taking off in one airport and jumping another place and there's a difference in altitude and I was monkeying the altimeter trying to figure out which way I go up or down to reset it for the drop zone and that engine quit and my only thought was getting out and I didn't run across Lenny till about 50 years later we were down at Zephyr Hills uh, my brother was a golden nighter he passed away and he wanted his ashes scattered at Zephyr Hills with the Golden Knights. They use that for a training drop zone. And uh, Lenny was there. I said, Lenny, you remember me? No. I showed him a logbook and I jumped. He said, oh, I remember that jump <laughs> very well. <laughs> but nice. Nice. If, yeah. if I think of the near crash, I'll get with you guys on that. But right now, my mind's a blank about a near oh, crash. Maybe uh, episode three, maybe. <laughs> uh, I know I was on Guam at 150 feet in a C-54, and we are making uh, practice life raft kit drops at 150 feet and we're in a steep bank 
and we lost the top engine in the airplane. And the pilot said, uh, simulated engine out, he's getting a check right. And the examiner said, engine out hell, this is real. And we come real close to burning in there. And then right before I got to the Philippines, we did lose the 130 that way with Jim Phelps and a ride out on it. They were making equipment drop at 150 feet and the 130 to a Japanese fishing boat that was sinking or sunk. And uh, they banked over and caught a wingtip in the airplane cartwheeled. And it killed everybody aboard the airplane, said Jim Phelps. And he was spit out of the airplane, un unconscious in the water. He was burnt real bad from the JP-4 fuel. And another Japanese fishing boat managed to see him and pick him up and got him aboard the boat. And Jim was motioning, he wanted the knife. And he got the knife and arched up to cut his throat because he couldn't breathe. He wanted an airway started. And the Japanese took the knife away from him because they thought he was committing Harry Carey. They admired him for that. But, <laughs> but oh. that was another crash. I don't know. Okay. Wow. But yeah, we're, uh, we're here today because uh, there was a story that you wanted to share. And we didn't have an opportunity to do that on our last uh, interview. So if you'd like. Well, I'd always wanted a real jump mission. And my first tour in Guam for a year and a half, uh, we didn't get any jump missions. My second tour is way back in the early 60s was at Patrick Air Force Base where the uh, Gemini program and uh, Pappy LaCasse and I, an old time PJ, much older than me, set up a team there. We're the first two there and no jumps. And my third assignment was Vietnam. So I was all helicopter. And then I did three years at the National Search and Rescue School, the Coast Guard School. They wanted a PG instructor there. So they yanked me out of Vietnam. So no jump masters there. So I was seven or eight years in my career and no jumps as far as missions go. And they sent me to the Philippines as uh, and so I see the team. And uh, I finally got a chance for my jump mission. It was a OV-10 Bronc that was coming back from Vietnam with a Marine Major aboard. And he was transferring fuel. And the fuel, instead of being transferred, was getting dumped. And when he realized this, he didn't have enough fuel to make it to Clark in the Philippines, or Subic, so he called a May Day. And we had enough time to take off in our 130, I was alert PJ, and we arrived on scene, and uh, we flew alongside of him at about 1,200 feet. And he punched out, we watched the ejection, he shoot open fine, his life raft deployed, he waved at us going down, we wagged our wings, and I'm fully suited up scuba, ready to jump with my teammate. We're back there, the door's not open, but we're ready to jump. The ramp is lowered with the ME1 kit, the survival kits that we carried. And I didn't know this, but the pilot, who was our ops officer and new to rescue, he wasn't really checked out. One number said in rescue procedures, instead of staying in altitude, he followed them down all the way. And the pilot splashed in, is in the water, and uh, instead of climbing up the altitude to drop the team, the colonel decided to drop the MA-1 kit, which is two life rafts with three equipment bundles between 540 feet long. The idea is you drop it upwind from the survivor and it surrounds him. Well, I'm not sure why he wanted the MA-1 kit, because we got two PGs aboard, but it was a dead calm sea, not a breath of wind. And uh, we started climbing back up to altitude, and I looked down, and they reported, well, he's swimming. 
to the MA1 kit. And I said, no, that's wrong. He should be in his life raft. We're not in radio contact with him. We make another pass, and he was dead. He was laying on his back underwater with his head underwater. And it took about 10, 15 minutes to die. And our regulation says that uh, the aircraft commander will deploy his pararescue team unless he can conclusively establish that no assistance from the pararescue team is required. Well, he didn't have radio contact. So really, we didn't have proof that he was okay. We should have dropped the team. And I blame myself for it for not allowing him to go down, but I didn't realize we're descending. And then we still could have maybe jumped. But uh, from that point on, I lost a survivor. I was determined if I ever get a chance to jump again, I'm gonna jump no matter what happens. I didn't know it's gonna be over the North Atlantic between Iceland and Norway during the winter time, during a bad storm. And uh, I had just arrived to RAF Woodbridge in England from the Philippines. I had been there about 30 days. And we had what we called the Kef Rotator. We sent a 130 every week over to Iceland. They had three H3 rescue helicopters refuelable there. Our mission was primarily to refuel their helicopters in case of extended mission. We had the PGAs aboard our 130, were fully equipped, ready to jump, but they had never ever had a jump mission out of Iceland because the helicopters were there, could handle everything. So I've been there about five days, first time there, and about eight o'clock in the morning, somebody's banging on my door saying, Dave, Dave, we got a jump mission. Well, I've been playing cards all night because when you're on alert seven days without a break, you can't do anything, you can't go anywhere, just eat and sleep. I got my days and nights mixed up. I was tired and uh, I went back to sleep because I hate practical jokers, you know. The wind was howling outside, it's a blizzard, there's snow blowing, it was freezing uh, down about zero level. They were kidding me. So I went back to sleep and about 10 minutes later, they're banging on my door because the air crew was out at the aircraft, the engines were running, they're ready to go, they didn't know where I was. So I got to the airplane, we took off, and then I found out that it was a Norwegian ship between Iceland and Norway that had experienced a boiler explosion and the whole bottom deck where the cabin crews were was completely shredded. They had two critical injured and about a dozen other injuries. And they tried to get a ship into them, but it was close by the couldn't. It was a bad storm, the winds were doing about 30 to 35. The ceiling's at 1,200 and dropping, and our minimum jump altitude is 1,200 feet for scuba. And uh, the helicopters couldn't come in from Iceland because the weather was so bad kind of a perfect storm type situation as far as the weather goes. So we found the ship, I'm fully suited up, and I'm in a uni suit, which is a Arctic wetsuit made in Sweden. I never had a uni suit on because I come from the Philippines, and I had already checked into the team. I put the thing on backwards, but the feet were pointing the wrong way, so I got that straightened out, got the uni suit back on. My teammate and I, a young kid out of school, but he's a sharp kid, and um, we packed a backup kit with a medical kit. We took our clothes and put them in that backup kit so if we got to the ship, we'd have clothes and everything ready to go. And uh, opened the door, first pass over the ship, I looked down and I could see that the seas were about 10 to 12 feet. The ship was white, it was covered with ice. And I could see stolt on the side of the ship, it was a stolt vista. And we had radio contact with the ship. So we uh, flew over the ship and I put, uh, come around and I put my spotter chute out. 
we're about 1,100 feet now because the ceiling is slowly dropping. And I put the spotter chute out, and we come around for the jump run. Uh, on an open sea jump, we use what's called a moving target pattern. It's a pattern we use so the team can land 10 minutes down drift of your target, and it'll drift to you. That gives you time to get out of your gear. This was designed for the Polo program because the Polo spacecraft, when it landed, uh, the parachute released, and the Polo spacecraft would skip across the water, especially with wind, and zigzag. So we dropped 10 minutes in front of it so we could catch the zigs and catch up with it and slow it down. We put our reserves on it to slow it down. And in this case, I uh, come around for the jump run, so it's 10 minutes from when I put the spotter chute out until we come back around for our lineup on the ship. I'm in the doorway, I'm ready to jump. My teammates behind me, I'll give credit to him. Young kid out of school, he didn't know what was going on, but he was going to follow me no matter what. And that's the way we train the guys, I guess. But uh, I come over the spotter chute, and I can just barely see it, the smoke. It's a 45 minute smoke flare because of the white caps. But I counted from the spotter chute to the ship, and it was a 30 second count. Well, at 125 knots, 30 seconds is a long ways to fly. And uh, I start my down count to jump. And just as I got to 1,000, 2,000, counting back to 30, the pilot comes on the intercom. And he said, Dave, are you sure you want to do this? Well, going back to the Philippines, when that guy died beneath me, I promised myself I was going to jump. I said, yes, sir. And going off intercom, I threw my headset down, looked out, didn't have the slightest idea of what the count was. So I was in real trouble now. So I looked back and I could barely see the smoke way back behind the ship and uh, drew a line from the smoke to the ship and looked down from my drop point and we're well past it, probably 15 seconds past it. I shouldn't have jumped, but the ceiling was already pushing us down. I knew if I didn't go now, we'd never go, so I went and my teammate followed me out. Well, I was kind of exhausted from all the time in the uni suit, they're hot inside the airplane, you're sweating like mad, you got 160, 170 pounds of gear tied to you, including your parachute, your reserve, your medical kit, your scuba tanks, your life raft, survival kit, radios and everything. And my exit was weak, you're standing on a little platform outside the door with your hands on the side, and when I jumped, I didn't clear the door. And I caught my life raft on the edge of the door, which spun me. So when my chute opened, I was twisted all the way from the back of my neck up to the canopy. My lines were completely twisted, and I couldn't move my head. I'm an old-time skydiver, and I've been in that situation a few times. So I waited until I could at least move my neck as I'm unwinding. Now, I'm spinning underneath the canopy. The canopy is steady, but I'm unwinding. And I looked at the ship, looked up at the canopy, and I was running toward the ship. And I looked back at the ship, and I had the thing nailed dead center. I didn't want that with that gear tied to me, so I reached up to pull a turn, and I pulled the toggle. The problem was, with my lines all twisted up, they wouldn't release. It would have kept turning, so I pulled the other one down. So now I got both toggles pulled, and I am backing up to the ship now. It's, the wind's still blowing me directly at it, but at least now I'm not running toward the ship. Because if I'd have landed in that ship running with the wind, they would have they scooped me up from the deck. It's about what it amounts to. And so 
I finally unwound. Now my chute's stable. I'm at about 300 feet, 200 feet. Look back at the ship. I still got it. I'm going right for it. And uh, so I grabbed my risers, pulled everything I could down, trying to collapse the front of the chute, and got as much pull down as I could to uh, drop faster and look back and the ship is coming up at me and I slammed into the side of the ship about 30 feet above the water line backwards so my tanks hit and I skidded down the side of the ship and I didn't really remember the impact I had my unisuit on and I don't know uh, I swung into it the captain was standing up in the bridge and I landed right below where he was standing looking down at me and the chute kind of wrapped around him and then fell free and come down on top of me. So now I skidded down the side of the ship and I'm in the ocean with the swells going up and down. So I had already released one side of my chute and I went down about 10 feet with my scuba to get clear of the chute, come up and I was clear of the chute now. So I dumped it. I dumped my tanks, just kept my med kit and my life raft. And uh, I was on the down one side of the ship when I hit it but they were launching a Zodiac from the upwind side with a little motor on it. And the two crew members come around and pick me up. Now, if they had sent a ladder down, I could have climbed up right there because I was hugging against the ship. So I got aboard and then Steve Tyre, my teammate, a young sergeant, was about maybe 200 feet away off the side. And I uh, went to him and he said, Sarge, what should I do with my gear? I said, dump it, get in the boat. So he dumped his parachute and everything, kept his med kit. And uh, I got on the radio, actually I was on the radio when I hit the water and got on my chute and uh, called the King Aircraft and said, you know, PJ team leader, King, and King came back and he said, who hit the ship? Because <laughs> they thought that they lost the PJ. And the pilot saw his career go down the tubes because he probably shouldn't have dropped me. And I probably shouldn't have jumped under those conditions. But I told him as team leader and I was okay to hit the ship. So Steve got aboard the uh, boat, we come around the next problem was getting from the raft to the ship because of the 10 to 12 foot swells. And uh, they dropped a rope ladder down to us and I was able to grab the bottom rung of the ladder as the boat fell away. So now I'm hanging on the other side of the ship. And I was able to climb up and got my feet on the ladder and got up to the top and the captain's waiting for me. And he's patting me in the back and he says, where's the steel? I didn't know what he meant. And come to find out, he heard the clang when my tanks hit the ship, and he thought we had armor plating underneath our dry suits. And he's feeling my back for, to prove that there was steel back there, because he could understand why we were jumping with steel plates on our backs. But it was my scuba tanks that hit. And uh, at that point, uh, we wanted the backup med kit to drop, so I stayed up on deck while Steve went down below. and. It, the crew, all the injured ones, were in the mess deck. No power on the ship whatsoever. And uh, two guys were on an operating table with tables. And the other sailors were sitting around on the side of the mess deck. And Steve started working on them while I got the backup kit. And I got it in our clothes, went down to get started. And the first thing I did when Steve had just finally got an IV started in the burn station, he hit about 60 centimeters and burn, second and third degree. He got the brunt of the explosion, the burnt, the fire. And I reached down to help him and pulled it out. After he spent about 10 minutes trying to get it in. So I wasn't too popular with Steve right at that moment, but we got the IV started again and worked on him. 
the other patient had shrapnel injuries in his thigh where a big piece of steel had gone in and embedded uh, next to uh, what we thought maybe had been the femoral artery there. And we were afraid that we moved them uh, or tried to get it out, we sliced the artery, and we probably couldn't have done anything to stop the bleeding at that point. He was bleeding pretty bad, but we patched him up. And then we found out that all these guys sitting around, we thought they were watching us for entertainment, or they were all patients too, just burns and cuts and stuff. So we started working on them. And about this time, uh, we already got maybe two or three IVs into the uh, burn patient about four or five hours later. It was getting later in the afternoon, and the captain called down and sent a messenger saying that uh, the captain of the Danish freighter frigate uh, wants to talk to you. So I had to go up and I had to walk across the open deck of the ship with the ice everywhere to the front part of the bridge and got up on the bridge and uh, it was a Danish frigate that had a helicopter board, a little French Elwood helicopter. And they offered to fly in right at the evening there to pick up uh, the patients. And I said, no, it's too risky, the winds are too high, uh, don't do it. We'll try to figure out something else tomorrow. And uh, he came back and said, uh, I insist that uh, I really strongly recommend that you take my advice. I said, okay. So about an hour later, the helicopter showed up and uh, it was terrible conditions. I mean, the ceiling was down to zero now. The 130 is still circling, so it helped the helicopter get to the ship, but there's no visibility whatsoever. And uh, they were hovering over the ship daring rescue and they dropped the litter down to us and we got the patient strapped in the litter and they used a tagline which is a rope so when the litter goes back up this litter doesn't spin in the rotor wash and I'm hanging on the tagline and their procedures are different than ours at least the ones I knew the ones I knew is up at the helicopter they release the tagline to you so it doesn't clip in the rotors their procedures are the tagline is weighted at the bottom you release it so the hoist chopper and I were having a tug of war with this tagline. But finally he yanked out of my hands and I found out later that the pilot said that he would never fly a mission like that again because it just, the weather was so bad he shouldn't have tried it. So anyway, we got the one patient off. We, I spent the night with the other one and uh, next morning the Icelandic Coast Guard cutter Thor rendezvoused with us and the Danish frigate rendezvous with us and we transferred the other patient to the Danish frigate and then they took Steve Tyre, myself and the Zodiac over to Iceland at Coast Guard Cutter 4 and right then the Icelanders were having a cod war with the British so the Thor is part of that cod war they were having. It wasn't really a shooting war but they were sure getting in each other's way and cutting nets and stuff like that and it was a 12-hour trip back to northern Iceland and Steve spent 12 hours in the captain's cabin throwing up. It was violent, see? And they offered us uh, bunks that rotated, but we're too proud to accept it, we should have. And I spent about four or five hours next to Steve. We took turns using the uh, captain's commode. Finally, I started feeling a little bit better, so I went up with the crew and got some soup. And I spent four or five hours with the crew playing chess and enjoying ourselves. We go back to Northern Iceland and we still had to get down to Keflavik where our airplane was, so they had a jeep for us. So they gave us a jeep ride from northern Iceland all along the coast, past the glaciers and the mountains, that was Hoffen, 
HOFN, which is a radar station site with about 20 Americans there. And the Hoffman commander was waiting for us and he had a party for us. Well, I've been up two days now, dead tired. All I want to do is get some sleep. But we partied with them for two or three hours. And the next morning they sent a loony bird up from Kepovic to pick us up. What amazed me was that uh, of the 20 guys there in Hoffman, one of the guys there was married to my first cousin, and he didn't catch my name. It was uh, weeks later, he caught the newspaper article that a Milston was one of those two guys, and he was married to my cousin June, first cousin. So that was just a, quite a coincidence there. We didn't realize at the time because we had our flight suits on and he couldn't read the name tag. But uh, that mission itself, according to newspaper articles, did a lot to cement relations between the Icelanders and the Americans because there was all this trouble brewing, primarily over the Icelandic girls, because the Icelandic girls were a national treasure, and they didn't want to marry the Americans because they'd lose them to Iceland forever. And uh, it was a tragedy when that happened to the Icelanders. And uh, so it, it really helped cement relations, and the Icelanders even thought about getting their own pearl rescue team started after that type of a mission. And uh, about a year later, I got a message from uh, Washington, the Air Force, Association, the Officers Association, and they invited me to Washington for the next convention and they awarded me the uh, Air Force Association Citation of Honor, which was really nice. Uh, they invited my wife and I, she couldn't go because of the kids in England in school, so I went alone. But uh, I went up to get my award, it was about like this, four, four or five nights of continuing activities. So I went up to get my award, and as I was walking off the stage, this foot stuck out of the guy sitting there tripping me and it turned out to be Senator Barry Goldwater ex-Air Force that wanted to shake my hand he almost made me fall flat in my face <laughs> right in front of thousands of people but that, that's the story of that rescue mission I probably come closer and should have died on that mission more so than any of my missions in Vietnam because if I wouldn't have got delayed in that jump by the time I got delayed I'd have been 10 minutes in front of the ship with those high waves and winds, who knows what had happened. I don't think they'd have found us. And there's no backup. You know, anytime a PJ team goes down in a jump like that, there's no backup except these guys today, I'll tell you what, they got the equipment. They go out with six guys with a square parachutes and their own raft with the motor attached and they provide their own support when they get there. Well, old days, we were on our own. We had nothing. And if I would have missed that ship, we were up by the Arctic Circle. Uh, the thing that amazed me most about that jump was that ship was drifting north at three miles an hour. They sent me the chart of the drift. With the current and the drift, they were moving north at three miles an hour. And that 10 minutes we flew around for my jump at the spotter chute, it had moved half a mile away from when I dropped the spotter chute. Now for that chute, that ship to be drifting north at three miles an hour, the 130 to be flying 125 knots the other direction, to drop the PJ right where he'd land on the ship. What do you think the odds of that are? Uh, <laughs> Needle in a haystack. Yeah, that's right. That's crazy. The only thing that saved me was that ship was drifting straight downwind <clears throat> instead of like a polo capsule skipping sideways or the keel off. Because they'd been off at least a little bit. I never got to the ship. But you're pretty sure of getting on a ship when you get the darn gone thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that was my one and only jump mission, but at least I come back from that alive, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, I appreciate Thank you reaching out and making sure we capture that story. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, yeah thanks, Dave.
I'll, I'll still try to think of what crash I survived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>